You're listening to The Beecast, the official podcast of Beeplans.com. Each week we discuss the latest news, resources, and advice for entrepreneurs and small business owners. I'm Jonathan Michael. And I'm Peter Thorson. This week we talk about business buzzwords to avoid, dangerous ways of thinking, and Joe Polizzi talks to us about content marketing. Jonathan, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, people talking about their businesses, mm-hmm. people pitching. Advertising your business. So uh, what worse than to sound stupid when talking about your, your business? I can think of nothing worse than sounding like an idiot. So we're going to have a guest on later on, but let's have a little fun first. What's, uh, you know, some of these things that people say in business? The business buzzwords that yeah. uh, people use. Pushing that the envelope. Either don't mean what you think they mean or just you need to stop using. So if you, if you personally had to remove one thing from your vocabulary, what would it be? Well, I know my wife kind of gives me grief about this. It's uh, using the phrase speak into or give feedback or provide input. Uh, It's kind of like a businessy way to say, talk to me or share your thoughts. There was a point in time I was at a weekend long conference and I got on the plane and was having a conversation with my wife and halfway through she just kind of stared at me and just looked at me and said, stop talking like that. And it really caused me to like pull back for a minute and realize, yeah, I just keep using these like jargony words that mean nothing when you're having a normal conversation with another person. Actually, a popular one that I'm noticing a lot, this is on mostly on reality television, but I'm going to say people say this in real life. That being said, mm-hmm. to start a sentence. Yeah, as like a transition. So we all knew that that was just being said, yeah. had been recently said. So they're going to tell us now that it is the thing that they had just said. Right, and that being said, let's move on to some other phrases that we want people to stop using. What about, it is what it is? And what don't you like about that? Uh, I just don't really see the purpose of saying it aloud. I mean, what are we gaining from hearing that? If you are willing to say it is what it is, it also means that maybe you're not able to perform any measurable change, meaning you don't have any power in the field that you're probably speaking into. Or perhaps maybe you just don't fully understand the problem. And so before you even engage with trying to solve it, you're just willing to say, "Eh, it is what it is, let's let's move on. Yeah, it rubs me the wrong way in the same way that uh, phrase, uh, fake it till you make it, uh, which, you know, I know Caroline Cummings used as a positive Mm -hmm. in her uh, her earlier guest uh, guest appearance here. So uh, she used the phrase, fake it till you make it, as a way of saying, before you're excellent at something, just try your best. Yeah. And I think that's an okay sentiment. I think the phrase fake it till you make it has has some more sort of insidious quality to it in a certain way. It kind of just implies, first of all, that the place that you're faking it at accepts people who are unskilled uh, and doesn't notice them. And then that also that you are incapable of simply making it. Of just doing a good job. Yeah, and maybe there's a good litmus test for whether these phrases should pass or fail and, and whether or not people should keep using them is, can you say the phrase without then having to explain what it means? Maybe you should just trash the phrase and use something else. I'm going to do three together because they all essentially mean the same thing and none of them really need to be used. Let's take this offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put this on the back burner and let's table this discussion. All of those are ways to just say like, hey, let's talk about this later, or let's not talk about that in this meeting. How about, let's take it a step further. The, the industry phrase, uh, drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> this one's insidious, and this is bad, because I, I don't know how this caught momentum, and I don't know why people are comfortable 
suggesting that their corporate culture is culty enough. Yeah. <laughs> that Do it's people... metaphorically similar to a uh, mass suicide. And what are we saying about ourselves when we're using these? For some reason, these business ones tend to fall flat and get overused. Um, you know, an example, uh, bleeding edge, for example, where, <laughs> where cutting edge wasn't cut It's not good enough. enough. It wasn't no. close enough, so we had to go the next stage. Had to go yeah, to yeah. the other side of the cutting edge, the thing that has been cut, the bleeding edge. Huh? No? No. Right. What's the bleeding edge then? <laughs> Explain it. Well, the ble it's, it's the same as the sharp. Bit. So the cutting edge and the bleeding edge are the same. Same, same point. Yeah, then why are you using plate. different phrases? It doesn't make sense. Well, one's just grosser. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> is. <laughs> but let's talk about cutting edge. Why, why the cutting edge? What does that actually mean? And this might be a good time to transition into, uh, there's some phrases that yeah, I think you can continue to use them, but a lot of people misuse these phrases. They right. don't know what the phrases mean, and so they use them in the wrong context. Uh, you know, I think when I leave a meeting and somebody has said a bunch of things that maybe they don't know what they mean, yeah, it starts to make me question whether they know the primary thing they should be doing. Yeah, it gives um, you a little bit of uh, mistrust in what they're actually supposed to be doing and yeah. whether or not they're good at it. Absolutely. So cutting edge is a good example. There's a version in technology where cutting edge makes sense. And I think it's when you are actually doing things that are legitimately moving things forward uh, with data and science and things like that. But I, what I tend to hear it in is like in terms of apps or social media and all it really means when somebody says they're on the cutting edge is that they're willing to spend, you know, eight hours testing out the Yo app, which just sends people a message saying Yo. Let's talk about the word viral because that's a great one. I think I think the word viral had lost its meaning and lost its way Years long ago. ago. Yeah. Long ago. Yeah, and just the idea of making something go viral. I mean, you can't really like follow a formula and make something go viral anymore. Um, and then the idea of simply because something is being f spread around with a certain velocity doesn't mean that it has gone viral uh, or that it is going viral. I don't think it's a number of uh, views. It's, uh, it's quite literally the, the spread rate. There is technically a rate where, and this is usually has to do with the sharing of the video, where from the origin source, a certain number of people share the video and that number becomes self-replicating. Again, to your point though, it, nowadays yeah. it just means popular. So why not just say popular? Right. Jonathan, I swear a lot of people are using the word actually a lot. It's almost like it's a filling space word these days, but that, that word has meaning too. So if you guys out there, listeners, are using the word actually, that's, mm -hmm. that might be a good one to cut out. Mm -hmm. Replace it in your mind with, I was surprised to find out, or you might not be aware. Yeah. Instead of just using it to emphasize, like the word literally. Yeah. It's a little over the top, which all begs the question, what's with begging the question? Where I've heard people use the phrase begs the question is after they hear somebody explain something, they want to transition into a follow-up question. And so they say, well, that begs the question that's not actually what that means, is it? So the phrase begs the question actually means within your original statement, your statement assumes a fact, but it's sort of like a, a version of circular reasoning where in the statement itself, it assumes something is true. So the interesting thing, you know, for us here, I mean, the interesting for, for small businesses, I think, is what can we learn from this idea of begging the question? When you've got 
a situation where you're presenting, let's say, data to a potential customer, mm-hmm. you don't want to present anything that's logically un- unsound, uh, logically incorrect, uh, has holes in it, if you will. Now let's start talking about some some ways of thinking that could be an error and could affect the way you operate your business. There are things that are so common that they have a set of names, these sort of like typical logical fallacies. It's actually one of my favorite articles on Wikipedia, uh, the list of logical fallacies. One group of, of, of fallacious thinking mm-hmm. uh, styles <laughs> is often categorized as the, uh, the gambler's fallacy. You know, it's that age old thing of if I flip a coin a hundred times, What's the probability that the 101th time will be heads or tails? And it's always 101th? That's right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> It'll always be 50%. Everyone yeah. always knows that it's a 50-50 chance. Right. And yet, if I said I just flipped a coin 100 times and mm-hmm. it was heads all 100 times, what's the probability that the next one will be heads? You're, you will be influenced by that. Right. I'm going to think that there's a higher probability that it will be tails because... Overall, it's supposed to be 50-50. And this is great for businesses to think about. And again, I just recommend, like, check out these Wikipedia articles. They're great to read. They're great to see where your brain kind of clicks and what parts of these your brain sort of has trouble with. Because a lot of times people, the reason these are called fallacies and the reason these exist in such common states is because they are so easy to fall into. Uh, The best example I love is called the hot hand fallacy. Mm -hmm. This is uh, a well-researched and well-observed one. Uh, where originally this idea of if you're playing a basketball game and one guy is shooting better than anyone on the team, the tendency is for people to pass to him more frequently. And all studies show that it does not actually increase or decrease your generalized probability of making that basket. And it's true, again, at the business level with uh, sales, mm-hmm. you know, flash sales, uh, selling one product versus another, uh, pricing points and that kind of thing. Another set of logical fallacies has to do with cherry picking and confirmation bias. Oh yeah, confirmation bias is, is always, you know, one of the most insidious ways of, uh, of sort of fallacious thinking. It's, uh, you know, you always want to, as soon as you think you are correct, you always want to cherry pick the data points that agree with you and at least ignore, if not fully discount, uh, data points that uh, you know don't really line up with your way of thinking. And here's where confirmation bias can really kind of like cause some problems because a lot of people think, well, just because I have an assumption doesn't mean I'm only going to pick out the data that proves it. Uh, but but a problem that can come into it is, oh, I'm a smart person, so I'm going to test things out and try to disprove it. But even in your attempts to disprove your theory, you might be leaving out things without even realizing it because you're ultimately trying to prove what you think is true in the first place. This is why scientists have to do double-blind tests. As soon as you have a subject in there who is aware of the fact that they're being tested or aware of the nature of the test, there will be some sort of influence on the nature of the thinking. Even the tests you run tend to be biased towards the point that you want to prove. There is no pure science, and this is then true on the business side. There is no true analytics. Most businesses are only ever creating tests and then testing the data points that they think need to be tested. So again, there's a lot of ways to kind of free your mind of this kind of thinking, to kind of get out of these ruts Mm -hmm. of constantly going over these same things. But the first step is always to just identify them. Know that this is what you may be doing, and then see if you need a, a good way to get out of that. I think the number one way of thinking that plagues all businesses 
Uh, I'm going to use the Latin. It's called uh, either post hoc ergo propter hoc or cum hoc ergo propter hoc. And this is literally correlating two things that are not necessarily related. You know, it rained yesterday and sales were down yesterday. Jonathan, are those two things related? They might be, they might not be. Do I sell umbrellas? Uh, and then the one I mentioned first, post hoc, that's when something happens directly after something. So whenever it rains, our website traffic goes down. Yeah. Well, our website's a global website. Why would that happen? It doesn't, and it's not related. It's just a coincidence at the global level. So it's basically the idea of correlation does not prove causation. A great example of this, of you know, correlation and not proving causation. We have a fascination, especially in America, of idolizing people who have made it to the top. And so we ask them, you know, what contributed to your success? How did you succeed? And, and things that come up very uh, frequently are, you know, well, I, I never let failure bother me, and I persisted when everybody else said no. Like all of these things that kind of like bolster the ego. Uh, what's true also is that we don't look at the people who fail and ask them the same questions. What caused you to fail? It could very well be the same answer. Well, you know, I didn't listen to people when they told me something wouldn't work, and I didn't let my failures bother me, and subsequently I failed. So I think that this really is a great way of, uh, you know, sort of kicking off our next guest, but also, again, uh, you know, hopefully our listeners can just leave the show and, and try reading something new. And I just think it's an awesome way for any business owner to expand and think about the way that they're thinking mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. Think about what tests they're running, like you said, Jonathan. Yeah. Right. So as a business owner, try to find your weak spots. Uh, test out things to discover those weak spots, and then back to those words and phrases that maybe you shouldn't stop. You know, keep using. You know, don't try to look or sound smarter than you actually are. It's okay to you know use your own level of intelligence, and people will appreciate that. Yeah, use the word that means what it means. Exactly. No reason to make it more complicated. So should we meet our uh, should we meet our next guest? Sounds good. Let's talk to Joe. All right. Hey Peter, today we have Joe Polizzi who is the founder of Content Marketing Institute. Uh, he's a longtime entrepreneur. This is his fourth book that he wants to talk to us about called Content Inc. And uh, just general great advice and an expert in content marketing and building an audience uh, to sell your product. So Joe, welcome. Guys, I'm happy to be here. I'm ready to get talking a little bit of content marketing or whatever else you two want to talk about. For a Main Street small business, for the best food cart in town, for the online reseller of Etsy goods, I mean, wh where do you begin? There's, there's sort of an everything-nothing approach to this. So how do you even get started in this process? Well, you're right. You can get totally overwhelmed with all the communication channels. I mean, there's no barriers to entry anymore to creating content or publishing because it basically costs nothing for you to publish online today and whatever, whether you decide I'm going to do a podcast or a blog or social media of some kind. So don't start with that. Don't start with, what am I going to do? Is it going to be an email newsletter? Is it going to be a print magazine? Start with, what's my story? Like, what am I going to talk about and who am I going to talk to specifically because you have many different kinds of audiences. So if you are a pet supplies company down the street, you know, who in your audience are you going to talk to? I'll, let's actually use that example because it's a good one. Let's just say you're right down on Main Street. You've got a little pet supply shop and you say, hey, I'm going to start a blog on pet supplies. And I would say, good luck with that. <laughs> How are you going to compete with Petco and PetSmart that have multi-billion dollar budgets that are canvassing that area? You can't. But let's say that 
you have a portion of your audience that let's say they're they're pet lovers, specifically dogs. Let's say they like to travel uh, with their pets and they happen to be in recreational vehicles while they're doing it. That's what I'm talking about, really focusing on a niche audience. Well, you know what? If you did that and you created, let's say you wrote a blog post to that audience on a on a weekly basis and sent that out to your customers, you could literally be the leading expert in the world on that topic because you know what? Nobody else is covering that topic. So that's where if you, you really have to go small to go big in this area. But don't start with, oh my gosh, is it Facebook? Is it Twitter? Is it LinkedIn? So just figure out, okay, what's the story I'm going to tell? How am I going to make impact on somebody's life in some way and be truly valuable? And then we get to how do we do it? Does it look like an e-newsletter? Is it an e-book? Is it a white paper? Is it a podcast? You can't, get, you can't put the cart before the horse. You have to really have to figure out what the story is all about. It's not about what you sell because does anybody really care about what you sell? No, they care about their own problems. So let's, let's switch that around a little bit. And let me use a really good example. Uh, Marcus Sheridan from River Pools and Spas. Really notorious small business uh, example of how you can use what we talk about in the book, the Content Inc. model for the better. So let's just say what Marcus says is we want to become the best teacher in the world at fiberglass pools, at installing fiberglass pools and choosing fiberglass pools and why to do it versus concrete pools, all that stuff. They're a teacher first, and then they say, and we just happen to install them. So I think if you want this to really work and you want to build an audience that ultimately becomes a customer database for you or you want to keep your customers longer, I think you have to have that mentality today. It's like, how am I helpful every day to my target audience. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, I sell flowers or I sell pet supply goods or I install heating and air conditioning equipment or whatever. I think that we get so focused on the product we sell, we don't realize that most every day our customers don't care about that product. What do they care about? I think we have to figure out every day, how do I create an experience for them that they're actually going to cut through the clutter and pay attention to what I have to say regarding, regardless of what I'm actually selling. That's actually very tough for a small business to do. But if you can make that transformation, it will completely change every aspect of your business because you're so focused then on your audience's informational needs. And by doing that, you open up the opportunities to actually sell more down the road. That's great. And Joe, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, the Content Inc. model. Uh, can you explain that for us? So what we did is we interviewed dozens and dozens of these successful, remarkable, fastest growing businesses in the world that started with by building an audience first that came back to their content, whether that's through email newsletters or videos on YouTube or podcasts or blogs or whatever. And they became these, you know, they built the audience, became these really fast growing companies. And we found them all over the world and we talk about them in the book. And what I did was we looked at every one of those models and we reverse engineered it. And what the amazing thing was, guys, is that they, we actually can, uh, we reverse engineered it and we found they actually follow the same six steps, every one of them. And the six steps are one is you start with what, this, what your sweet spot is. Your sweet spot is the intersection of something that you're very passionate about as an individual or a business and something at the same time that you have some knowledge, knowledge or skill set around, some authority to speak about. So I'll give you a quick example would be uh, Andy Schneider, who is the chicken whisperer, which is a, a great example we talk about in the book. He actually is the world's leading expert on raising chickens in your backyard. And I love this. And whispering. And whispering to them. Exactly. He calls himself <laughs> the chicken whisperer. And what he had is he really had a passion for teaching. So he, he basically, his friends were interested in backyard poultry and, and he started to teach them. He really had a passion for it. At the same time, there, were, there was no expertise in the world around 
raising chickens in your backyard. This is actually a thing. And he couldn't find any expert information on it. And he actually became the leading expert in this area. So that became his sweet spot. And now he's a hugely successful business. He's got magazines and books, and he's got 20,000 weekly listeners on his radio show. But he started with this idea called the sweet spot, passion and knowledge area. Then you take it into step two, that's your content tilt. And simple enough is, what's an area of little to no informational competition that you can actually be the leading expert in the world at something? Go back to that pet supplies example I talked to you about. You can't just do a blog on pet supplies. Too much competition. You have to focus on, hey, well, maybe I can be the leading expert in uh, people that like to travel with their dogs in recreational vehicles in upstate New York. And you have to get that specific. And if you do, then you found an area of little to no competition that you can actually be the expert. That's your strategy. So step one and step two, that's your strategy. Step three, building the base. That's where the work comes in. That means you're blogging once a week or you have a podcast once a week or you have a video that you do once a week, whatever the case is, that you have to actually publish like a media company publishes. And by the way, this is not easy. It does take time, as you guys talked about before. But if you do have the patience and you can do it consistently, just like a media company does, we found that you'll be very successful. And then going into the last three steps, once we do that, we want to harvest the audience. We're building an audience. And how do we do that best? Believe it or not, email is not dead. Email marketing is the best way. We want email subscribers where we have the most control. Nothing wrong with social media, guys. Nothing wrong with building an audience on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. But we don't control those connections. Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter own those connections. So we want to use those connections on social media to build our email subscription database that we have some control over. Then once we do that, we get into step five. We see all these really successful businesses. They start to diversify. Like I talked about the Andy Schneider example. Once he had his radio show up and running, then he launched the the world's greatest book on backyard poultry, which is a number one hit on Amazon. Then he launched the magazine called The Chicken Whisperer, believe it or not. So he's become the world-leading expert, and he does what every great media company does, is once you get a minimum viable audience, you then go and you diversify the platforms. And then, of course, the most important thing that everybody's like, hey, how do I make money off of this? Step six is monetization. So what do you do? Do you get your customers to stay longer? Do you go out and find new customers that didn't know about you before that subscribe to your newsletter? Uh, do you actually, could you sell even advertising and find new revenue streams against that because you built an audience? There's all different kinds of ways to make money. Copyblogger Media did it. They sell online products. Moz did it through online products. Uh, Matthew Patrick, who has 5 million subscribers on a show called Game Theory. He monetizes it through selling merchandise mostly as well as advertising on YouTube. So uh, Anne Reardon, who's the baking queen of Sydney, Australia, she has 2 million subscribers on YouTube. She did it uh, by selling uh, partnerships with different manufacturers in the baking industry. So there's all different ways to make money. You know, We do it through our events at Content Marketing Institute. So that's the six-step model. We go through each of the six steps in the book. I feel that it can be the business model for any smaller business or entrepreneur that wants to be successful. And if you can give it 12 to 15 months, which a lot of people don't want to hear, but this is not something like advertising. Like, hey, I'm going to advertise and I'm going to see all these people come into the store. That's not it. It takes time to build a loyal audience. But what we've seen is if you have the patience and you put in the work, 
creates the most remarkable businesses I've ever seen. That's great. And Joe, you know, I think you've mentioned before that the timeline, 12 to 15 months of getting this up and running, um, you know, what what do you have to say maybe as a word of encouragement for someone who's maybe in month sixth or somebody who's excited about starting it all right now, but they're going to get six to eight months down the road and they're not seeing the results that they want to see. They're feeling burned out and like this was, you know, just... a a wasteful endeavor, you know, what do you want to say to them to keep them going? The only thing I can say is, and I've been in media business for over 15 years now, the greatest media companies of all time that we all know and love, they were not overnight successes. It's funny because somebody was saying, yeah, but Joe, but BuzzFeed just came out of nowhere. And and in 2012, 2013, their, their content was everywhere on Facebook. I said, do you know, do you know they started in 2006? And they're saying, hey, well, ESPN, I mean, look, they're everywhere. And I said, well, did you know they started in 1979? I mean, so if you really want this to work and you want your business to be in it for the long term, you're creating an asset. What you create, it's different than advertising where if you buy an advertisement, you've got to get the value out of that ad right away because it's gone. It's not there anymore. That's, that's not the case with content. Your content will live on as an asset for your organization, just like your vacuum example. If you, that vacuum example, that video that was up there, that might have been created a year ago. If you look at uh, Blendtec, uh, who's a very popular blender manufacturer, They've got videos that they created from blending up iPods and iPhones and whatnot from 2007, 2008 that are still going strong and still delivering amazing results for them from a revenue standpoint. So I think you have to think about it that way and just be patient. And I think if you set your expectations to know, look, we're in it for the long haul, and then take your wins as you can. If somebody shares your post, that's great. You want subscribers to email newsletter. That takes time, but man, celebrate every one of those as you go. I mean... The first year that I was doing this, I think by the end of the 12 months, I had 3,000 subscribers. I was super happy about it. But now five years later, we've got 143,000. So it just gradually works. It's an asset that builds over time. And if you stick with it, you will be successful. But to your point, be, you know, cheer. You know, you have to be a little bit of rah-rah around some of the little things that happen. If somebody talks about your post or you do get a sale through one of your pieces of content, and share that with your team so that everybody really starts to believe that this thing can work. The one last thing I'll throw in, you know, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, catchphrases, buzzwords, uh, things people don't need to say in the workplace, uh, you know, common fallacies, uh, common misused phrases. Let's, uh, you got any favorites in that, in that genre or anything that uh, these small business owners should avoid in terms of uh, getting too jargony or getting too businessy in their, uh, in their writing? Well, the, the, my favorite thing to do is, and I do this all the time and not to poke fun at certain people, but I go to people's about us page on their website and it usually says things like we are the, we are world class <laughs> or we, are, we have revolutionized or we are best of breed. And I would just say, just speak like a human being. You don't need any, you don't need any of those. I mean, you run into them, right? You, you even these, these big enterprises are the worst at this too, because they go in and they throw in, it's like they had some amazing copywriter throw in every, you know, type of phrase that you could possibly think of that nobody ever uses in plain language. So I would just say, look at your about us page is a great place, place to start. 
And if it doesn't, if you say it and it sounds weird, like a person wouldn't really say it, then you probably need to just rework the whole thing and just say it like it is. That's the great thing about the content today is gets more and more human and you want to just speak like a human being. I think people appreciate that. And if they read whatever you are telling them and they sort of have to sit back and they're not really sure they don't really get it. You've got major problems because you got to you got to cut through the clutter immediately and any of those big words just leave them out. Probably my favorite is world world class. World what does world class mean? Is world does that mean I'm the best in the world? I'm going to class, it's in the world. I don't know what that means. So, I think people it's lost its meaning for people because it's been used so much. So, so try try something else. Help be helpful. Help me help you. <laughs> now we're all going to go watch Jerry Maguire. Thanks for talking with us today, Joe. Uh, is there somewhere people can go to find out more information about you or about the book? Where where can we find more? Absolutely. So anything on the book, Content Inc. right now, you can go to content-inc.com and you can get information on the book, where to buy it, as well as if you have no money or you're incredibly cheap, there's a free chapter there. And there's an ebook that gives you 20 of the best case studies uh, from around the uh, that we talk about in the book. So go to content content-inc.com and then for all those people on Twitter I'm easily accessible on Twitter at Joe Polizzi P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I Awesome yeah and we can definitely include links to both of those in our show notes so people can easily access those Fantastic guys it's been a pleasure chatting with you this was uh, this was fun Thanks so much for joining us If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show send us an email at bcast at bplans.com That's bcast at bplans.com our theme music is by Jasinski. The Bcast is brought to you by Palo Alto Software, makers of bplans.com and LivePlan. Visit bplans.com for everything you need to start planning and growing your business.